0: and you don't have a Bible, uh, gentlemen are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and uh, wave, and they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage, and then if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 13, and we pick things up in verse 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Pathos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John departed from them And he returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and they sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, please feel free to say it. And then Paul stood up, and he, motioning with his hand, he said, "'Men of Israel, and you who fear God, Gentiles who are God-fearers within the synagogue.'" Listen. "'The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt.'" And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. And now for a time of about 40 years, he, is, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And after that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And from this man's seed, David's, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John, that is, John the Baptist, had first preached, Before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think that I am? I'm not him. I'm not the Messiah. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled these scriptures in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, And he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us uh, their children in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. And therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. For David, had, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he, that is the Messiah, whom God raised up, saw no corruption. And therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though you were one were to declare it to you. And so when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these same words might be preached to them the following Sabbath day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this passage. We marvel at the diversity of your book, a page in this direction, two pages in the other direction, and altogether, new revelations of you, your heart, your wisdom, instruction for us. And we crave it all. We long for all of it. And we ask that you would speak to us now through your Word, by your Holy Spirit, as you have done for thousands of years. We've come for a work of your Spirit, and now speak to us, we pray. And we ask it of you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Paul and Barnabas are on the first of what would ultimately become three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. Uh, They've been sent out from their home church in a city called Antioch. They uh, caught a boat to the island of Cyprus and preached all the way across the island. Came to the city of Paphos, which was the capital, uh, Roman capital of Roman uh, Cyprus at that time, preached the gospel, and Sergius Paulus uh, became a Christian, the highest offic- Roman official on the island, despite the opposition of Bar Jesus, as we looked at uh, last week. They then make their way now into what was known, a region, it's called Pamphylia here. Pamphylia was a smaller section of a larger section of modern-day Turkey that was known in those days as Galatia. So they come now uh, to uh, Pergos, and uh, there's no preaching that Paul does there. There's no uh, any preaching that Barnabas does there at all. Instead, the record tells us that they make a hundred-mile journey uh, away from uh, Pergos, and they make their way to Antioch of Pisidia, which was at an elevation of about uh, thirty-six hundred feet above sea level. Uh, Pergos was at the was at uh, Perga was at sea level. This uh, Pamphylia, or this. Uh, uh, area of Pamphylia, modern-day Turkey today, a, a section of that. Paul's going to, very shortly after the events that we're looking at here, he's going to end up writing a letter back to these churches that get established uh, here, and it is his letter to uh, the Galatians. Now, there is, uh, as as people look at the record here in terms of Paul and the initial part of this Uh, first missionary uh, journey. He makes his way to Antioch of Pisidia. It's it's almost as hard to keep track of the Antiochs in the Bible as it is the Herods in the Bible, and for the simple reason that there were 16 cities, different cities in that region that were called Antioch because there was a man by the name of Cilicius. He was a king, and um, he so respected his father, whose name was Antiochus, that he proceeded to name every city he could, uh, Antioch in in the honor of his father. So all of these cities have to be kind of hyphenated. So it's Pisidia, uh, you, you know, of Antioch in Pisidia, in order for us to recognize which Antioch it was. It's noteworthy, again, that there's no mention of Paul and Barnabas preaching in Perga of Pamphylia they uh, moved directly to Antioch uh, of Pisidia and uh, it causes some to speculate that the reason for this might have been a physical kind of problems that Paul describes in his letter to the Galatians uh, that he picked up somewhere before uh, he got to establishing uh, most of these uh, these churches and um, so uh, the and that he had probably picked up malaria And uh, the particular strain of malaria that was frequent for that area of the world at that time, travelers have logged it. I guess people will log anything when they're on a trip, but um, the, the malaria would be complete with headaches that were described by travelers as having a red hot bar thrust through the forehead or like a dentist uh, drill boring through a man's temple. So the, the, uh, the physical ailment, the physical complications and pain of, of that particular malaria. According to Roman history, the low-lying uh, sea-level Perga, and it was a, a, a sea-level city. It was a hotbed for a recurring uh, malaria epidemics that happened through uh, Rome's history. And the idea is that Paul uh, picked this up, and now he and Barnabas make that hundred-mile journey to a higher ele- uh, elevation so that he can be away from what's happening in the lowlands with this. And uh, try to recover. And the biblical record is pretty consistent with this, and uh, Paul would later write in his letter to the churches at Galatia, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. It, it almost indicates that in terms of Antioch of Pisidia that that might not have been on there. Uh, log for the places that they were going to go, but this physical problem that he had, you know, necessitated, you know, coming to some of the cities that they came to that they might not otherwise have done that. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first and my trial which i was in my flesh you did not despise or reject but you received me as an angel of god even as christ jesus and what uh, then was the blessing you enjoyed for i bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me now paul following his it kind of helps us to put sections of the bible together now Paul following his custom when he went into Antioch of Pisidia on the first sabbath day he makes a beeline for the synagogue on the Sa- and to meet with the Jews who were meeting on on sabbath on saturday the typical order of a sabbath Uh, uh, Jewish Sabbath service is the same uh, 2,000 years ago as it is today if you were to walk into a typical synagogue and be a part of the service. There was always the recitation of uh, the Shema, which was the reading of the passage from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, which begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and so on until they uh, completed the Shema. Then they would offer up additional prayers. Someone would then read a significant section of the Scriptures from the Law of Moses, and then after that there would be another reading from the second uh, portion of the Old Testament known as the And after the reading of the prophets, it would be followed by an invitation for someone who was qualified to then stand up and give an expository teaching uh, from the law and the prophets, and and then there would be a closing blessing. After reading the law and the prophets, the ruler of the synagogue uh, invited Paul and Barnabas to speak a word of exhortation, to uh, preach a sermon if they so desired. And I think they were longing for this really. You can imagine Paul, he's not like, and I'm not putting anyone down that comes in late for service or anything like that. But uh, you can imagine Paul as he comes to Antioch of Pisidia, and here's Jewish people. He's on a missionary journey. He wants to reach them with the gospel. He's going to get there plenty early. He's going to get there to talk with people, and they are too. And a synagogue in that town would not be like what we're in here today where you're talking about hundreds of people in a room. It would have been a much smaller group of people. You can't come in without being noticed as a visitor, and where are you from? And I'm from Jerusalem, and, and Paul, and this, and maybe they find out that, you know, he had been a student of the great uh, Jewish rabbi uh, Gamaliel and uh, maybe even his background a little bit. And the fact that they've come from Jerusalem, it's like, okay, let's have these guys preach. I mean, they are from the city. They are from Jerusalem. And so the invitation is then Uh, given to them. And of course, Paul was delighted, of course, uh, to accept the invitation in order to uh, preach Jesus as the Savior, and that's what he had come there on his missionary journey in order to do. And so he stands, he silences everyone with his hands, and, and Paul was very polite in these environments. And he acknowledged the Jews that were present and also this group of Gentiles known as God-fearers who had abandoned all of the thousands of Roman gods and realized that's all bogus, there's nothing to be found there. Um, let's go and find out about the God of the Jews, discovered what they liked in terms of the Old Testament and so forth, and then became followers though Gentiles, of, of Judaism and of the Old Testament, and so he acknowledges both Jews and Gentiles there uh, within the synagogue. And here the Holy Spirit, through Luke, He provides us with the first full summary that we have of one of uh, Paul's sermons. It doesn't mean it was Paul's first sermon. He's been preaching for a very long time now, but it's the first record that we get and if, and I think that the, because the Holy Spirit records it the way that He does for us, it gives us a sense of what is typical of His preaching and what He would say if He, you know, walked into a synagogue, uh, say, today. And so we're not going to, uh, uh, you know, investigate the, uh, the sermon exhaustively, but I do want to Um, make a a couple of very important observations relating to what it speaks to us here today. When Paul, uh, concerning the sermon, when Paul preached the gospel with people, he met people where they were. He brought the same gospel to every single person. He was always faithful to do that. But he approached it differently depending upon the perspective or the worldview of who it was that he was trying to reach. The Jews had a completely different perspective and worldview than the Gentiles did, and vice versa. So when he would go in some place and he would preach to Gentiles, Uh, He dealt with them completely different than what he would say uh, in a synagogue, and so when he approached someone who was steeped in pagan Gentile religion or the world uh, in that day, and uh, in the same way that you know that we might uh, even today, here you're dealing with someone as Paul would be with the Gentile world. They don't. uh, The Bible has no authoritative. Uh, hold in their life. They don't recognize it to be uh, uh, divine, or they don't recognize it to be something that speaks authoritatively in their life. And so you speak to that kind of a person differently than you would speak to the Jews, and so he did. When we talk with people sometimes, and I think it's part of our learning curve right now as Christians, but sometimes, you know, we want people uh, to, when we share with them, oftentimes we don't meet them where they are. Uh, We don't give them enough time to explain where they are, what's going on in their life, so forth. What is your worldview? How do you see things? That's interesting. I could never live with that because here's the question that would raise in my mind and blah, 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 and you begin uh, a healthy discussion that occurs. But you have to meet people where they are because they can't be anywhere else than where they are. And so Paul was very, very sensitive to that, always deliver the goods, but he began in a place where then the gospel could impact their lives. And so sometimes when you are talking with someone who is you know, full Gentile, no background in the Bible or anything like that. They begin to speak of their fears. So often someone will talk about their fear of death. They'll talk about a fear of illness. They'll talk about their mortality. They'll talk about their emptiness in their life, the loneliness that they experience in life. What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Why are we here? Why do people die? And, what's, and uh, then they have the confusion people do over the hardness of life. Why are there wars? Why do people butchery? each other? Why do people cut other people's heads off and so forth? And these are the kind of questions that can pop up around a water cooler or can happen at school or happen around the Thanksgiving dinner table. And, uh, and then what happens is something like that gets raised then. Uh, we listen to them, and then we come in and we say, well, listen, I, I don't know a lot about all of that, but I do know God's explanation for the existence of these things from His Word. And uh, And here is the fall. And man was created perfect, he was in the image of God, so forth, he fell. And then the world that you're living in now is fallen and so forth. And that's the reason that it's in the mess that it's in. But you begin the conversation with him in in that way, always being sure to ultimately bring the conversation to Jesus at some time. When he approached the Jews, he did it in a different way. And the reason he did it in a different way is that the Scriptures were authoritative in their life. And so he goes right to the Word of God to begin to establish the fact that Jesus was and is uh, the Messiah. So he takes them there. Now, in reading the sermon, I I don't think you can help but notice how familiar it is to the sermon that Stephen preached uh, in the presence of Paul in Acts chapter 7, immediately before being stoned by the religious Jews, and Paul held all of their jackets while they uh, stoned him to death. But you remember that Stephen preached a sermon there, and the sermon that pre- Paul preaches here is very similar to that one, and the sermons that Paul would continue to preach would be very, very similar to the one that he heard uh, Stephen preached, and I'm convinced that, that Paul never got over that sermon. He never ever uh, forgot it. How that in just a matter of a few minutes as this man is speaking here and, and, and in the course of that sermon, how it completely undermined everything that Paul believed in. It completely undermined his complete understanding of the Law and the Prophets. His understanding of it as being a way to to live a moral life and one day be acceptable for heaven, to keep the Ten Commandments, to live a life better than other people so that you can then get into heaven. And then here comes someone like Stephen and preaches a sermon that Paul up to that point could only dream probably of preaching. And then the light goes on and he realizes this isn't about law, this isn't about self-righteousness, this is about the Messiah, this is about Jesus. This is what the whole book is all about. As Jesus said to the Jewish religious leaders in his day, he said, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life, but these are they which testify of me. In other words, if you read the Law and the Prophets and you don't, and you don't come away with me, that they are about me, then you know nothing about the reason for the writing of the Old Testament. And that great fact impacted Paul in a powerful way and And by the time the sermon was over, it left Paul's religious world in a complete heap. And I think with that great legal mind that God had given to him, he tried to crunch that sermon over and over and over again to find a flaw. It can't be true. Uh, He must be mistaken in what he's declared in all of this, and he couldn't find a single flaw in the power or the pure logic or the biblical foundation of everything that Stephen had said. And then he realized that he had given his entire life to the study of the law and the prophets, and he had missed the entire focus of both of them. And the focus wasn't his Jesus. And now Paul stands up in a room that is filled with people who are just like him. And when he preached this message to them, he expected that message to have the same impact upon them that it had had on him years earlier. I don't think anyone will ever become an effective preacher uh, of God's Word or teacher of God's Word or even a share of God's gospel who has not first felt the power of that Word in their own life and in their own spirit and the witness of the Holy Spirit to God's truth. And when a person has experienced it, they will then go into the various environments that God calls them into, and they will expect God to do with His Word in the lives of other people that God's Word had done Uh, to them. And I think that Paul carried that sense, that experiential knowledge of the power of God's Word for the rest of his life in delivering it in every uh, synagogue that he went into. Notice, too, that this sermon is absolutely full of God. In the first part of the message from verses 17 to 22, Paul reviews their history from their great patriarch Abraham all the way through uh, to the psalmist, uh, king of Israel, David. And over and over again in these verses, he, uh, Paul mentions God. And you can look at it for yourself later if you're so inclined. But it goes, God, he, 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 God, he, 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 God. And I look at the, just you can't cram more God into a sermon than he does. And I thought, I think to myself, how refreshing. I don't know about you, but when I came to know the Lord, and I decided to get my life, uh, you know, I knew what the truth was, and I knew where to go to find it. But when I made my way, way back to church as a, a young adult, um, and I walked into a church, I expected to hear about God. Not about me, not about other people, not about my destiny, not about my best life now, not about my potential, my I, me, I, I, my... I'd had enough of myself, and I wasn't that impressed with anybody else either. And so when I walked into a church, I wanted to hear about God, and how refreshing. If you were going to come in someplace under the apostle Paul, you were going to hear about God. And in this sermon, essentially, Paul gave them a history of uh, God's very uh, active and very gracious involvement in their lives. Number one, in calling Abraham, verse 17, in delivering them out of the land of Egypt, verse 17, in providing for them in that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, verse 18, in giving them the land of Canaan, verse 19, in giving them judges and delivers, verse 20, even in giving them a king, Saul, when they uh, clamored for one, verse 21, and then in blessing them with the greatest king they ever had in their history, King David, who he describes as a man, God describes as a man after his own heart who will do my will, verse 22. And then having laid all of that down, Paul then spoke to them of the greatest expression of God's grace to the Jewish people and to mankind as a whole, uh, of all, and that is the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus as he speaks about it in verses 23 through 39. No sermon is ever complete until it's brought back to Jesus. Because, again, the volume of the book testifies of him. Now, in this sermon, the Apostle Paul answers the question once posed to me by a lawyer while I was in conversation with him. His question went something like this. He said, you know, I go to churches and I'm told to believe in Jesus Christ and that I'll be saved, but I don't understand why I should believe in him any more than in anyone else in human history?" And I thought it was a great question. I think it's a great question today. And when Paul calls upon this congregation in that Jewish synagogue to believe or to trust in Jesus as their Savior, he didn't say, you need to trust in in Him because I've trusted in Him. That'll never do for a lawyer. Or you need to trust in Jesus as your saver, Savior because hundreds of millions of people have done it all over the world. That may be good enough for some people, but that is not good enough for a lawyer. Now instead, he declared here, in essence, you need to believe in Jesus as Savior and as, uh, as Messiah based upon the testimony of three witnesses. Number one, the witness of John the Baptist, verses 24 and 25. And they were familiar, evidently, with his ministry. John the Baptist said, I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, and I'm not worthy to take off his sandals, uh, let alone to wash his feet in speaking about his humility before the greatness of Jesus. He calls them, uh, second, to heed the uh, witness of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And many of those eyewitnesses were yet alive uh, to that day. And then third, and supremely, he raised the witness of the prophetic Scriptures of the Old Testament in verses 27 through 37. In other words, why should someone believe in Jesus as their Messiah? and as their Savior. Why should you believe in Jesus as your Savior and as your Messiah as opposed to believing in any other uh, religious leader in the course of human history or any other man or woman? And the answer that Paul gives is because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies given concerning the promised Messiah. And you notice his repetition of this theme in the sermon Paul gives here. Verse 23, according to the promises, 27, fulfilled, 29, fulfilled, 32, that promise which was made to the fathers, 33, fulfilled, 33, as it is also written, 34, he has spoken thus. And so in this vein. notice that Paul mentioned that God promised that the Messiah would be born as a descendant of David in verse 23. And that prophecy that was made concerning the Messiah was made through the prophet Isaiah 750 years before Jesus was born. And Isaiah put it this way by this Holy Spirit, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, in order to establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, Even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. And Jesus was a descendant of David. Paul declared further in verses 27 and 28 that uh, Jesus' death was exactly as the Old Testament prophecies had declared that they would be concerning the Messiah. And there's all kinds of examples of this in the Old Testament. Let me give you a number of them where they're uh, the most concentrated in Isaiah chapter 53, uh, verse 3. He is despised, uh, Isaiah wrote of the coming Messiah. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In verse 8 of Isaiah 53, he was taken, speaking of the Messiah, from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And then in verse 5 in that same chapter... Isaiah speaking, not only of the fact that he, Je- the Messiah would die, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And Paul declared that also that Jesus' burial was just as the Old Testament Scriptures declared would be true of the coming Messiah. Isaiah had written that the Messiah would not only die, but that he would be buried, and that he would be buried in a tomb, and he would be buried in the tomb of a rich man, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. And they made his grave, prophesying of the Messiah, with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And so it was true concerning Jesus." Paul declared that Jesus' resurrection was just as the Old Testament scriptures had declared would be true of the Messiah. And Paul quotes from Psalm 16:10, uh, where David prophesied of the coming Messiah, that though the Messiah would die, he would not remain in that condition long enough to see corruption. His body would not remain dead long enough for it to begin to. To corrupt, and in speaking of this, David was declaring that the Messiah would be resurrected, and and Paul quotes David uh, on this in uh, verse 35, quoting Psalm 16:10 where David wrote to the Lord, for you, speaking to God the Father, will not leave my soul in Sheol, and then now speaking to the Messiah, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And so Jesus' body, though He died, it did not see corruption because He was resurrected on the third day just as the Scriptures declared that He would be. Now, when God gives prophecies uh, like this, and then fulfills these prophecies. God isn't showing off. It isn't, it isn't like a card trick or something, or watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat, or let me show you stuff that I can do that you can't do, uh, tell you the future with 100% uh, accuracy. Fulfilled prophecy in the Bible is intended to provide mankind, and more specifically, to provide you with an unassailable evidence for the divine inspiration of the Bible and concerning its reliability so that then you and I can feel absolutely comfortable that when we put our faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah, that we are not doing this blindly, but that we are doing it on the basis Of the surest and most unchanging thing that exists in the world, and that is the very Word of God and the prophecies of God. And then Paul, in this sermon, he preaches, as every evangelist ought to and every preacher ought to, he preaches for a decision. Billy Graham always did that, uh, Greg Laurie continues to do that, and so many others uh, like them. And so he declares Jesus to be the fulfillment of these prophecies, and then he declared, calls on his audience to believe or to trust in Him uh, for their salvation as a result. He's calling on them to confess their sin to be willing to turn from the direction that they're going in life, recognize that Jesus is the Savior of the world, He is the promised Messiah, and then to commit my life to Him. And when a person does that, then the greatest miracle that can occur in life occurs. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives when we're born again by the Holy Spirit. It's so important for you to understand that if you're new to Christianity or being exposed to it or have never been exposed to it, the idea the prevailing idea concerning Christianity is that, you know, we just kind of stumble on this book of the Bible and it kind of click for us a little bit, and uh, we're all just waking up every day, and we're reading it, and we're trying to live this life on our own strength. That is not what Christianity is, and that's not the life that we live as Christians. When we became Christians, we became Christians because God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit literally came into our lives at our invitation and our willingness to take God up on the offer. And when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he's called the Spirit of Christ, he now comes into our lives and he begins to live the life of Christ through us. And he provides us with the desire, the will to do, and the power to do of God's good pleasure. He provides us with the motivation and the desire to live this life. You look at people and you say, my aunt, my uncle, my brother, my sister, they became a Christian. It's crazy. I can't believe the change that's occurred. And I can't believe how long it's lasted. I don't, I, I don't get it. He must just be a religious nut, just meant to be religious. That's not what happened to him. The Holy Spirit came into his life and is brought with him this desire to live the life that's described in the book, and then the power to live that life. And when a person trusts in Jesus and Trust in Him as their Savior and Messiah, that's the miracle that happens in every single one of our lives, the greatest miracle that a human being can ever experience. Now, in doing this, when a person is calling on them to put their faith in Jesus, he then goes on in verses 38 and 39 there, What will be the result of having done so? And in verse 38, he said, you will receive the forgiveness of sins. And then in verse uh, 39, the second great benefit is that they would be justified in the eyes of God in a way that no one could ever be justified in the law and the prophets. Read with me with your own eyes in verse 38. And therefore, let it be known to you Oh, I wish I knew what his voice sounded like. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, when you read that and you look at that, the forgiveness of sins being offered by God, justification being offered by God, and you look at that offer that's being made in that synagogue and you put yourself in that place where if my heart isn't hardened to this curse of familiarity that I have to fight in my own life. I can read verse 38 here and the forgiveness of sins and go on about it, have a cup of coffee and a donut, and it doesn't impact me anymore. The way that it impacted me on the day I was born again and forgiven of my sins. And it meant the world for me to be forgiven of my sins. And then now these things that are unbelievable things that I could wish that when I hear them, I was hearing them for the first time so they would impact me in that way always. And to stand in awe of the fact that God Almighty... Offered to me and to you and the whole world the forgiveness of sins. What an offer. He didn't have to do it this entitlement mentality in the United States of America where now it isn't just anybody else gives us something and we deserve it. We've taken it to such a degree that when we think about God offering forgiveness to us, there's no awe. Of course he would. We deserve it. But we didn't deserve it. And he didn't need to do it. It's a reflection of his love for us as his creation, that he was willing to pay a price that we could never pay, that we might even know about the possibility of the forgiveness of sins, let alone to actually receive the forgiveness of sins. And in receiving that forgiveness, to receive a separation from all of the judgment that my sin deserves from God being removed from me, and with it all of the guilt of my sin, all of the condemnation of my past, all of the regret of my past, all of the embarrassment of my past, all of the self-hatred that goes with being unforgiven. Wow! The forgiveness of sins... The privilege of the offer and then the unbelievable privilege to have received it and to walk in it. And then, and we then know that we can walk in forgiveness and freedom because we know biblically that God has extended it to us. And then we know it instinctively. There is something about that death and burial and resurrection of Jesus that the Holy Spirit gives a witness to like nothing else. And we know instinctively that no matter how great our sin was in the past, that it could never be greater than the sacrifice of Jesus on that cross to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. And that's a wonderful thing to live in and to move in and to have our being in. But He didn't just forgive us. We were also justified. And justification goes way beyond forgiveness. And when we trust in Jesus, we not only receive God's forgiveness, but we are declared righteous in the sight of God the perfect right onness and righteousness of Jesus is put to our account so that every time God looks at me and you as a Christian he never sees our past sin never all he sees is the righteousness of Christ because In putting our faith in Jesus, we have done the single greatest thing that a human being could ever do to bless that heavenly Father, and that is to trust in his Son. And thus, he looks at us, and when he looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. He sees us, the theological term is justified, And the word justified means exactly what it sounds out to be, just as if I had never sinned. What dollar amount are you going to put on that? If you had to pay for it, I mean, what would would the sticker price be? To receive the forgiveness of God, and then for the rest of my life he looks at me just as if I had never sinned. You know that sin that you remember from your past that you can never forget, and it still affects how you view yourself? He doesn't remember it anymore. You remember it. But he doesn't remember it anymore. And it is not affecting his relationship with you at all, though it might be affecting your relationship with him because you don't understand justification. He remembers our sins. No more. Let it go. Let it go. Let it depart from the relationship that you have between you and God. Stop asking for forgiveness for something that He forgave you of a long, long time ago. And the problem is is that when we interact with one another in this world, we can, the most we can hope for from people is that they'll forgive us. But we know they can never forget. We know they can't do it until one day we're in heaven. And we carry it over into our relationship with God. But the truth about our relationship with God is that He not only forgives, but He also forgets. He also justifies and views us just as if we had never sinned. And I think God wants to speak to someone, and maybe more than just one here today, that thing that comes up and you beat yourself and you beat yourself or it sends you into condemnation or whatever it does, I'm very familiar with the pattern on an experiential level in my own life, to let that go now and for the rest of your life to replace it with the word justified, just as if I'd never sinned and to realize that's the terms on which I have my relationship with God. He does not bring my past into this relationship and I don't have to bring my sinful past into it either. That's the greatness, the beauty, the power, the wonder, the supernaturalness of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the worship team would come forward, and if the men that are going to serve communion would come forward, we'll partake of the Lord's Supper now and give some consideration for a moment to this thing called the forgiveness of sins, a Selah moment, and also this great truth known as... Justification.